Hello and welcome to episode 95 of the Conversations with Ross podcast. I'm Ross Carey. Thanks for listening. Thrilled to be joined right now by Sean Pamphlin. Sean is the director of the documentary, The United States of Football. Sean, thanks so much for taking the time to join the podcast today. Thank you very much. I appreciate the, uh, the opportunity. Sean, tell me about the project and how it all came to be. Well, uh, in 2009, I read an article uh, just almost four years ago, actually, uh, by Mike Silver, uh, who's now a writer for um, the NFL Network, NFL.com. And he was chronicling uh, uh, an episode that Kyle Turley had. Uh, Turley's the former uh, New Orleans Saint, uh, best known for throwing his helmet, uh, or you know, uh, after ripping a helmet off of a, a jet player. Um, but he was also an all-pro lineman. He played nine years in the league, and he had a seizure and, and was close to death. And um, he was diagnosed as CTE symptomatic, which is chronic traumatic encephalopathy. And I remember um, when I interviewed Kyle in 2004 uh, for my film Run, Ricky, Run, which was um, part of ESPN's 30 for 30 series. I interviewed Kyle, and he talked about uh, kids playing football. And he said that you should have your kid play any sport but tackle football. And I was uh, a father who was avidly teaching his son the game. Um, but I never, it never left my mind that Kyle said that. So in 2009, when my son's about 11, almost 12 years old, and we're you know, about to make that decision whether or not he can participate in the sport, um, at least the tackle version of it, uh, I, I, I hit pause because what Kyle said never left me. So I started off with the macro idea of uh, what is this chronic traumatic encephalopathy? What are these players uh, suffering from? And the micro idea of do I want my son to play this game? And what was supposed to be six months, six months turned into three plus years, which is uh, sort of uh, sort of what happens with me making making documentaries. What obstacles did you encounter while making the film? Well, uh, the first one was uh, was funding um, because um, you know not a lot of people in broadcast television um, want to uh, put money towards something like this without knowing what the conclusion is beforehand. Because what I was doing was much more exploratory. And in the moment, letting the story evolve versus looking at something hindsight or having information that you're trying to either exploit or having someone expand upon. So, um, you know, that was the first obstacle. So we had to finance it ourselves, um, which over a three, you know, three plus year period, we put a lot of money into it and borrowed uh, an extensive amount to, to be able to tell this story. The second issue was, okay, if you're going to do it for a broadcast entity, how truthful can it be? And when I started the film, um, you know, we had a really good relationship with ESPN based upon the success of Run, Ricky, Run. And they were certainly intrigued by my passion for, the top, uh, for, the, for this topic and the way I was going to approach it. But they had very much a let's sort of wait and see um, attitude about it. But we did what was called a first look option or agreement, which meant that if they were into the project, they would basically have the the dibs on it as long as they made a competitive bid. And in the process, they helped us gather certain interviews like Malcolm Gladwell, uh, Frank DeFord. I actually sat with the entire uh, NFL countdown crew after a show one day and interviewed you know, the lot of them all together. And so they were behind it, um, but there came a time when we were looking to get certain interviews in the NFL, and it was made clear to us that uh, we needed to tone it down and we needed to, um, to watch what we were doing uh, if it was going to be something that would air on their network. Um, so we just, kept, <laughs> we just kept going, and, you know, eventually they just said that, you know, um, you know, Sean, 
Yeah, because they gave us three rounds of notes, directions to go in, and everything seemed to be changing. And then finally they said, listen, you know, we've sent you off in all these different directions, and ultimately you need to make the film that you need to make. And uh, I made the film I needed to make, and uh, and they rejected it. So which didn't surprise me, given what's especially what's gone on recently with PBS. Well, let's talk about that. Recently, last week, I believe, there were news broke that the NFL pressured ESPN to drop their involvement in a similar documentary that was being co-produced with PBS. What were your impressions on that? Well, I mean, I was shocked that it happened this late in the game. Um, you know, for the United States of football, when we submitted our footage to the NFL, which is something you have to do to, to license it, they send it over to William Morris Agency, and they handle their licensing. When it got to William Morris, we basically uh, got stonewalled and they stopped talking to us. So we had to go out and get a, a fair use lawyer um, that uh, Steve James, the director of Hoop Dreams, uh, recommended to me. And uh, his name is Peter Jazzy. He's one of the best in the business. So we got a, a proof of insurance letter and we were willing to fight. Um, when the NFL rejected uh, you know, the use of their footage with ESPN and PBS, which happened, I guess, about a week or so before this decision, um, my thought was, okay, how are they going to handle this? Are they, are they going to fight or are they going to just cave? And I think the, the, the answer is there. I mean, they caved. The, 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 the programming is still going to air. But without the branding of ESPN, without the relentless promotion they put into their projects, the odds are not as many people might see it, even given the controversy. Or if they see it, they're, just, it, it, they're not going to be as effective because it's not coming from uh, the worldwide leader in sports. And I think, that's a, I think that's a shame. When did the NFL first realize they had a problem with head trauma and concussions and the long-term effect that it was having on some of its retired and even active players? Well, I think that's a question that, that only they could, they could answer. Um, but the reality is they didn't admit it on the record until I think it was July of 2010. So when, when I started this film, they, didn't, they hadn't even admitted it yet. So then they admitted it. Uh, you know, if you go back to the congressional testimony, I think it was 2009, and if you see the deer in the headlights looks that are on the faces of Roger Goodell, the NFL commissioner, and D. Maurice Smith, the National Football League Players Association executive director, uh, they were just, you know, they were just taking shots all over the place from uh, these congresswomen. And then uh, Linda Sanchez specifically was someone who was amazing in that forum. And they just looked like they didn't know what they were talking about. They were trying to pass it off on doctors who had given them information. And it was clear they were trying to, on one level, claim ignorance. But at the same time, you can't claim ignorance in too strong a fashion because then it looks like, well, how deep was your head really in the sand? So I think that Goodell in, you know, inherited something that was already brewing for a long time. And I think he's got 32 bosses who have a lot of power and a lot of money. The NFL reached a settlement with the 4,000-plus players that are suing them over this issue. They reached that settlement today for $765 million, which works out to roughly about $170,000 per player. Is that enough? Well, I mean, I've talked to a, a few guys uh, who aren't really uh, enamored of that at all. Uh, if you break it down, I think they're going to pay about half of it over the next three years. And the other half, I believe it's over a 17-year period from what I understand. And if you consider that they're a business that is reportedly about $10 billion a year now, um, people I know have uh, insisted to me that it's closer to 11 and a half or possibly 12, with their projections going up to 25 within the next 10 years, 
I think it's really not that not that significant a number, but it's it's better than they were doing before. And by doing it, it's a tacit acknowledgement that, you know, we did something wrong. We're not going to give you the information of exactly what we did wrong because the, the, the case is not going to go into discovery now. But by, by giving out that amount of, amount of money, they're saying something. The part that disappoints me is if we got into discovery and we really learned how the sausage was made, it might resonate more strongly in the American public's mind and we have to we would have to consider um, that as a, as sort of a, um, you know, uh, a real indication of, of, of sort of where they're coming from as they promote the game to our children, as they tell moms that the game's safer now because they're implementing rules and, 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 and techniques that we don't even know if they're going to work, but they're already coming from the assumption that we've made the game safer. And I think that's, I think that's dangerous. I think it's dangerous ground uh, to make those assertions, but, it's, a, it's masterful PR. And there was also, as part of the agreement, as part of the settlement, there was like a lack of accountability provision, which the NFL admits no wrongdoing or no direct correlation between the effect of CTE and the NFL, which I guess is common in these type of settlements, but that still doesn't make it right. Exactly why I say it's a tacit admission. I mean, they're not. It's like when Pete Rose said, you know, I'm not admitting I gambled on baseball, but I'm going to give up my entire career and possibly my, my, my future induction into the Baseball Hall of Fame, just so I don't have to look at you and admit what I did. And that's what it is. I mean, it's, a, it's an expensive tip on a tab that I think was, was, was bigger. And by them not having to admit it, they don't have to wear the egg on their faces. They don't have to go into discovery. And they can keep sort of this illusion that I think we all want to partake in um, and I include myself in that. I mean, I'm a huge football fan. I have been for 37 years. I'm a Seahawks fan. I'm psyched that the season starting. But as I watch the game of football, you know, I, I understand it on, on, a, on a much different level than I did four years ago. And I, I look at it and I say to myself, um, you know, I think we should care about these guys when they're no longer there. They're paid as entertainers and you know, when they're done and when they're damaged, we don't care. And before it was just about injuries like knees and elbows and, you know, joints and all this stuff. And it's like, okay, you'll take that pain because you made the money and you all sit around and drink beer and talk about how you, you do it over again. But what people aren't seeing and what I've seen like close up and firsthand in these homes, in these, you know, rest homes, in these uh, women's houses that are taking care of these men that can't do anything for themselves I've met children who've spent a lifetime dealing with abusive fathers, either physically or mentally, gentlemen that by and large were considered great guys by their, by their peer group and by their friends, but have absolutely just been menacing towards their kids because they lack impulse control and the ability to deal as a parent. There's so many things that go on to the, into this and so many layers to it that this, this money doesn't, doesn't change that. It's not going to change the fact that these people will still be reacting this way. I'm in the same boat that you are. You cared enough about this issue to make a documentary of it. I watch football every Sunday, and I always have, and I, I don't see that leaving, even though I'm very concerned about the issue. I guess the question is, are we responsible for still watching a, a product that we know is harmful to the people participating in it? And I guess the second part is, what will it take for your average American to care about this at all? Well, I think that we're responsible in the sense that we're selling it to children. I mean, we have to admit it's, I mean, like someone said to me that, 
oh, you know, it's like, it's like the tobacco industry. Well, I smoked cigarettes for 13 years, and I knew they tasted like crap. Football tastes like ice cream, so the, the correlation between that and the tobacco industry is like it's way off. But I think we have to look at it from the standpoint of if you're selling something that's harmful to children, uh, that's different. You know, if you're having players like Drew Brees, who told me in an interview that he later withdrew his, uh, his uh, consent for, that he wouldn't let his children play, his sons play, wouldn't even consider it till they're 13 years old because of what he said as he's tapping his hands together, the consistent trauma. He said, I hate to use the word trauma, but he's the same person who has a Nickelodeon campaign directly tied towards the NFL's quote-unquote laser focus on developing young football fans. So you're going to sell us a game that you wouldn't even let your own kids play. And I think that is the kind of stuff. I mean, I, I said to Mike Wise of the Washington Post that, you know, as the time goes on, history is going to see people like that and, and, and breeze. Joe, Joe Camel and shoulder pads. You know, you can't, you can't, I mean, I'm still watching the game because I love it. I love the game. I love football. I think it's physical poetry. I've given up basketball. I've given up baseball to a degree because I'm, I'm father of three. But like you, every, day, every, every Sunday I'm still there. You know, so for the future of the game, they have to, you know, they have to listen to their own people. The senior advisor to the NFL's head, neck, and spine committee, Robert Cantu, is, you know, last year was, was selling a book he wrote and insisting that, from what he understood from the science, children, because of their unformed brains, should not be playing this game before the age of 14. But meanwhile, Goodell, at the Super Bowl, is chaperoning a nine-year-old girl named Sam Gordon, who was an internet sensation last year as a nine-year-old, who was like this super amazing badass peewee player that when they brought her on SportsCenter or, or you know, had her highlights on SportsCenter, you had former NFL players breaking down her highlights and celebrating her. But no one said she ran. She, she carried the ball 233 times last year and made 65 tackles. That may not be good for the nine-year-old brain. I don't know, but they're not even talking about it. And part of the problem here goes beyond the, the action in the game itself. It's the attitude that the game breeds. So many analysts on TV are former players, and their attitude when Goodell tries to find players for some of these hits that, seem, that may result as dangerous hits or may be seen as dangerous hits are, why not just put the players in skirts? This is football. Yeah. Let them play yeah. football. That attitude is so detrimental. It's so archaic, yet it's prevalent on every single network that broadcasts the NFL. Yeah, I mean, look at the, uh, the the Clowney hit last year, the one that like that was Sports Center's top play forever, right? Like, and it got like Play of the Year and all this other stuff. I mean, how can you show that stuff and your your announcers literally sound as if they have erections after that hit? Listen to the announcers. Oh, ho, ho, he means business. I mean, seriously, these guys are going nuts for that hit, and that dude went right under that guy's chin, popped his helmet off, and for whatever reason, we didn't see that the fact that the guy had a, you know, a head and a brain underneath his dreadlocks that we saw flying everywhere. So, I mean, when you see these, these features on outside the lines, I mean, excellent show. A lot of great journalists who work for that show. But that show is a tic-tac in the ocean of NFL Live, NFL 32, NFL Insider, NFL Prime, I mean, NFL Counter, I mean, NFL, I mean, NFL, NFL, NFL. And... I liken the, the, the outside-the-lines approach, at least from the corporate mentality of ESPN. It's like, that is cover-your-ass journalism. That's just saying, okay, we're covering the story. 
And uh, we're not doing the same with PBS, but we're going to still cover the story, but we're going to wash it out with 99.9% of other coverage where everyone's just like bowing to the league. So, I mean, come on. <laughs> it's, it's ludicrous. You know, it's ludicrous. You used to work for ESPN. I'm curious if you feel like ESPN has any credibility when covering the NFL anymore, especially after the pulling out of the PBS documentary. Oh, I mean, I, I didn't think they had credibility uh, before that. I mean, I, I, you know, my film, I've been working on it for over three years. I have a longstanding relationship with the company. You know, so the idea that they would, you know, when, and, and I was specifically telling them, this is not just a film. It's a, it's a call to action. And this is a social health issue, you know, and they basically told me flat out, Hey, that's not our, that's not our, our place. That's not what we're doing over here. And I was like, Hey, you can still make a, a film that people will watch that will draw your ratings. You can still do that and help people. And I think that the way that I, that, that we made the United States of football, I think the way we made it, um, it just, it just gives you a certain kind of feeling that doesn't, you know, it breaks your bubble of, uh, uh, of you know of, of willful blindness, you can't you can't ignore it. You know this is the way it is. This is what's going down, and our goal is to protect children, inform parents and the kids themselves, make sure everyone is given you know m you know proper medical uh, treatment. I mean one of the things that we're doing that we're specifically doing as a call to action is we're trying to create a program called Big Doctors, and we wanted to emulate or mimic the Big Brothers Big Sisters program. So, at, you know, across the country, you would have people with medical backgrounds or EMTs, nurses, you know, uh, high-end trainers, doctors themselves come in and adopt a team. Or maybe it's a couple people that adopt a particular team. And they have to stay with that team through the season. And any contact practices and obviously games, there has to be adequate medical personnel there. <laughs> Someone, you know, it should not be broken down about whether, oh, the game's on ESPN on TV, so we have to have a medevac to be able to move them out if, in case something happens. Well, if that's the case, in every poor community in this country, there should at least be one person who can, you know, with, with, you know, with maybe a defibrillator or something, uh, to help kids who's trained at least in the basic CPR, uh, you know, and, and the various maladies, that, you know, the, obviously the, the, the dehydration or blunt force trauma. I mean, there has to be someone there besides a coach who could potentially just say, ah, you'll be okay. Or other players who in that culture, you feel compelled to go back. There has to be someone there to protect children. And it's, it's a, it's egregious that it only happens for kids in certain areas because their parents drive better cars. Well, and it's one of the most disturbing things about the documentary and about the issue itself is how little active players publicly speak out against it or seem to care. You interviewed James Harrison in the film who was fined several times for dangerous hits and Harrison admitted that players fake being healthy all the time, that they lie about head injuries. If a coach asks them, how are you feeling? They just say fine. They could be dizzy and seeing stars or brown spots and they just lie about it. Players to them are just saying, we want to be playing. They don't care about the head trauma, or at least they, they don't seem to now. I think, they, I think they absolutely care about the head trauma, but I think it's a very, it's an occupational hazard to get too in-depth with it. You know, I've got a friend who played in the league for 10 years who was spreading the word. His name's Sean Morey. And some people told him, oh, you just know too much. You know, because you're paying attention to it, all of a sudden you be, you know, you're cognizant of these things, and you're like, wait a minute. There's something going on here. So it would make you play a different way. So I think James was incredibly honest and, and thoughtful in the things that he said. 
And it's the reality. I mean, like, look what happened to Kaepernick last year, uh, to Alex Smith last year. He did the right thing. He said, listen, I've got a concussion. And boom, I mean, he's done. You know, a lot of these guys, if, if you know, if, uh, if Kaepernick wasn't there, uh, I wonder what would have, well, I mean, obviously the guy would have got his job back. But the CDC recommends that when you have a, a, a concussion, you, you should have no activity on this level, certainly for a month, not a week, a month. You know, and we hear all this stuff about independent neurologists now. Well, you know, they saw an independent neurologist, but we never hear who that who that independent neurologist was. We never hear never hear that. It shouldn't be an anonymous neurologist. It should be an independent neurologist. And if they're talking about having neurologists on the sidelines of football games this year, I mean, they didn't exactly lay the plan out for us. Is it one who's going to deal with all 106 players? Is it two, one on each side? What if two guys have a problem at the same time? Yeah, I mean, it just feels like there's this continual band-aid being put on until there has to be more applied just to stop bleeding versus analyzing it and saying, okay, this is what we need to do to change football. This, is, this could save the game. We have to own this. We have to admit this. We have to realize we can't sell it to kids, and we just won't make quite as much money, but there's a thirst for, and, and passion for the game. It'll, it'll, that will remain. Of course, neurologists should be on the sidelines. It's ridiculous to think that they're not. It's one of those things, though, that just doing that is a Band-Aid because you still need to change the culture and the attitude towards the sport. I watch Hard Knocks on HBO every year, and you had some video of youth coaches. It goes all the way through every coach in football, every level. The way they get through to players is by screaming obscenities right in their face and slapping on the forehead to get pumped up. Like, you are warriors. You are out there to hit people. That's a constant refrain among coaches. How does that change? Well, I mean, like, you know, one of the coaches I think I think you mentioned um, or, or you're thinking about in the United States of football, there's a, there's a coach uh, who was a defensive coordinator at my, at my son's junior high school. So my thought was, okay, a lot of the hitting happens in practice. So if my kid's a wide receiver, I want to see who would be the guy who's you know, ordering other kids to, 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 to tackle him, to hit him. And this guy was just out of his mind. I mean, not a bad dude off the field, but as soon as you got him between the lines, he was like certifiably like just about nuts. And he talked about living vicariously through the kids. He talked about the excitement he would feel when uh, he would see two, two kids hit each other. And I looked at him and I said, this isn't in the movie because, you know, it just, it's just too much. But I looked at him and I said, listen, you know, I've heard guys get less excited about sex than you are about these kids beating on each other. And he looks at me and he laughs because he thinks it's funny. And he goes, I think I got a chub just thinking about it. And I'm sitting there, <laughs> I swear to you, it's on tape. I swear to you. And my mouth is hitting the floor and I'm saying to myself, okay, you're 21. Your dad taught you this. Uh, this game validated you on a level as a man that you needed. And, and you're out here doing this, but what are you doing to kids? I mean, I think that there aren't certifications uh, for, 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 for being able to coach this sport. I mean, there's the, now there are certifications that you have to have in terms of concussion training, but you could literally just walk off the street and be like, yo, I played high school football. Nobody else is volunteering. All right, I'm, in, I'm into it. And you can go in there. You know, I think that these coaches have to be trained to teach the game properly. I think they should be interviewed by the collective group of parents whose kids are going to be playing for that coach. And I'm talking about like basically answering Q and A's, but also essentially it's your own psychological test. Why are you doing this? What do you get out of it? I'd want to listen to these guys and not just hear them say, well, I just want to like impact young people. And I want to see you run a practice. You know, I, I, but one of the ironies is uh, the, one of the worst things I saw was in Virginia, 
at Virginia Tech, they have uh, helmet sensor testing. They were doing it with college players, and then they started doing it with peewee players. And I shot, you know, I, I did the thing at, at, at Virginia Tech. I shot all the helmet technology, all that stuff. I interviewed the guy who runs it. Totally cool, great, awesome. You know, oh, we have a peewee game today. Really? Can I go shoot it? No problem. I go out there, and the program, so these kids got these black, this black tape on their helmets, and it's measuring the G-force of their collisions. And the coaches on that team in the pregame, they did not have these kids run one single rep. All it was was these little kids, these eight-year-olds, probably about five to ten yards apart, and they have them run right at each other. Like, just run right at each other. Nobody's trying to elude anybody. It's just like, no, you're not playing football. You run right at this kid. And if they weren't going hard, if they, if they flinched at all, these coaches were like, come on, that's not dancing. You know, I need you to, get, like, I need you to give me your heart, son. <laughs> Why didn't you put your head in there, son? And I went out and I shot the game on the field. And I'm thinking to myself, can these parents not hear this? So then I went out and I, and I was in the stands. And you could still hear these guys. And I'm thinking to myself, like, wow, like, why would, you, why would you put your kids in this situation and subject them to not only the physical aspect of it, but the mental aspect of it? I think one of the things you're referencing was, was this coach who was swearing in kids' faces. And I'm looking at this guy, and he teaches in a high school. And I asked him afterwards, I was like, first of all, if you were a baseball coach, could you have said that? You probably would have got fired if you were a baseball coach and you said that. I said, but if you were a math teacher, I <laughs> Like, could you, could you, is this the way, like, if there's a mental mistake that your student's making, I mean, what is it about the game of football that allows you to be abusive, to not evolve with the times? I don't get it. And, I, and one thing I noticed specifically, it's way more prevalent in hotbed areas, like, you know, in the places I went across this country where football, there's, there's a fervor versus, I'm, I'm in the Seattle area. People are, are kind of chill. They appreciate it, but hey, you know, you know go home to your parents you know, feel well. It's not the same. Completely different. Yeah, and that's interesting. I wonder if this is, Malcolm Gladwell talked about this in the documentary, if this is going to become an issue of class, where upper class, well-educated people are not going to let their kids play football, and you're going to see a significant decrease in participation in that class area. I think it's already happening. Well, are you going to have a league that's essentially just made up of poor kids from the South, poor African-Americans, and poor kids from the Pacific Islands? Is that all the league's going to be? Well, I, I, a friend of mine uh, who was in the league, uh, he, he was a, a wide receiver who was actually white. And you know, he would say that like every year he was um, basically the fifth wide receiver. And some of his coaches would say that the, the battle, the spot was really for the four, not for the five. And it wasn't because he was white. It's because of all these different different aspects of his game and how he helped the team, not just, in, you know, as a special teamer, but also as a scout teamer, which is very important. And, you know, he told me that he did an analysis of it, and he said 92% of the skill position players that aren't, you know, the, the guys that aren't kickers or linemen um, are, are, are African-American. It was 92%. So uh, I think we're already experiencing that, and I think that we're just not having a deeper-layered, uh, nuanced conversation about race. And I think that's certainly the next part of this equation. Uh, once we get down to, uh, you know, the declining participation, once we see the numbers get even more stark, I think, you know, suburban communities throughout this country, I believe, like Gladwell is saying, it's going to affect, there's going to be a, an attrition over a period of time. But in the football hotbeds, I don't think that's going to matter for a while. It's not going to be based on, on, on class. I don't believe it's going to be based on culture. 
you know, and whether you're white, you know, and you're affluent or you're poor and you're aff- you know, and, and you're white or however it breaks across the boards, it's going to be not just money in that area. It's going to be culture and tradition. And I think that um, that's going to stay strong. And I think, I think that, you know, the SEC, I mean, they're going to, you know, that region is going to, is going to guard this game for, for dear life. And, you know, I can understand it. It's part of the culture. And I've traveled to so many places across this country where, Football is the meeting ground in that town, and if you took it away, um, what would it be? And you know, in many ways, with kids not being able to be more as social as they were, are at least you know, uh, so much of it's about the technology. But when you go to a football game, it's about human interaction, and in so many of these places, I think that that would be uh, devastating for the culture not to have that. It's like, well, what else are we going to do now? You made news a few years ago for your involvement with the Saints Bounty Gate scandal. For people listening that don't know what that is, tell us about that. Well, it was a program that the uh, New Orleans Saints employed uh, for better part of three years, from what we understand, from what the NFL's investigation uh, came up with. And I didn't know I didn't know what that was. I mean, when I heard about bounties, I remember like uh, Buddy Ryan putting a bounty out on Luis and Dejas, <laughs> you know, stuff like that. You know, get get their kicker. And but I didn't I didn't understand this. And I was in the locker room. Actually, I, I, I keep saying locker room now just because the, the way that uh, the public uh, dialogue has been. I, you know, that's what it, you know, I wasn't in a locker room. I was in a hotel room the night before uh, the candlestick, uh, the night before the 49ers and Saints played at uh, Candlestick Park, um, I guess, in January of 2012. And in this locker room, the defensive coordinator for the Saints, Greg Williams, was instructing his players to um, – Kill the head, the body will die, uh, repeatedly. And that's been understood as being metaphor. He was talking about Frank Gore. But if you really listen to the audio, he's saying every time you get off the pile, affect the head, this and that, touch and hit the head. So he's letting you know that, you know, you you cause, you know, at least temporary cognitive impairment when you're hitting someone in the head. And he's basically telling his defense to continually do that. He's asking for guys to you know, to possibly take out ACLs, specifically, you know, mentioning going low and taking guys' knees out. And he talks about this receiver for the 49ers, Kyle Williams, and he specifically says about his concussion history. And he's like, early on, put a lick on him, test him. And that was, uh, I found it offensive. Um, I was in a situation where I was, you know, I was entrusted to come in there, and I understood that. So I was not going to... I released that audio. What I was going to do is I was going to reference that in a voiceover in my film, not mention the specific coach, but say, I saw it. I heard it. This happens. And uh, about a month and a half later, the NFL actually broke the story themselves. They put out a, a press release and, and, and they suspended Greg Williams. And they talked about this program, you know, being in existence for three years. And I called my film partner because I was on the road and I was like, I think we have that. You know, I didn't see money being passed out in envelopes because I was in the back room, back of the room, you know, focusing on the specific people I was documenting. But later on, when, you know, it, the story broke, you know, I don't have that on camera, but you can hear audio and, and they're talking, give it back, give it back. And they were talking about cash payments. But my feeling was when the coach Williams got busted, he said that we knew what we were doing was wrong. And I was highly offended by that as someone who was in the room because all he did multiple times during that speech was he said, we do not apologize for the way we play the game. And that's the first thing he did when he got busted. 
But the fact is, he threw his players under the bus by saying, we, we knew what we were doing was wrong. You're talking about a, a room comprised of mostly kids from backgrounds that were not affluent. Most of the room, as is most of the NFL, is on non-guaranteed contracts. So you're basically fighting and scratching to survive in a league where your life expectancy is three years, three and a half years. So we didn't know what we were doing was wrong. We got laid out there by a coach who, you know, basically was semi-sadistic uh, and highly successful. And he was telling us to assault people in a way that would have long-term ramifications for short-term personal gain. And in a culture where we exist, where we understand that, that what these injuries can do to people, I thought that was highly offensive. So I was lobbying through the community of the people that I was working with to release that audio. And it was for the reason that I honestly believe, you ask yourself this question, why did the NFL release that at that particular time? And the follow-up being, if the Saints had won the Super Bowl, would that have happened? There's no way in hell, I believe, in my opinion, they would, have, they would have broken that story if the Saints had just won the Super Bowl. They would have never disturbed that narrative. They would have ridden that high. But, but, but they didn't. And in releasing, you know, uh, and, and putting these bounty systems out, I think they create this idea in the minds of the American public that uh, these guys are complicit in what's going on. This, you know, they're doing it to themselves. And there's an element of that, yes, because they're actually physically carrying out the, uh, the orders. But everything else behind it that I just described, it's like, wait a minute. It's, it's not that. Gladwell said it was dogfighting in his uh, New Yorker piece in 2009. Well, we care more about the dogs that Michael Vick's crew killed than we do about these people who actually got the helmets on. And he made some really, really interesting points. And I think as this conversation gets drawn out and as the, the, the attrition for the lower levels of football continues, we're going to have to have a deeper layer conversation about what this really is. Shortly after the audio came about and that story broke, Peter Gammons asked Bud Selig what would happen if this was baseball and a manager was ordering his players to intentionally hurt other players. And he said he would suspend them for life. And I imagine that that would be the case in any other sport. Do you feel like the participants in Bounty Gate got off easy? I think that Greg Williams has a, a job already. I mean, he's, he's like a, the assistant, you know, defensive head coach or whatever they're calling him in Tennessee. So I think he got off easy for sure. The players themselves, I think they were they were scapegoated. I think they were humiliated publicly. I think they were run into the ground. And I think that the NFL kept saying that, oh, we have all this evidence, 50,000 pages of evidence. They said, well, where did all that go? You know, where where did where? But they they pumped that out there into the minds of the American public for the better part of six months. So the damage is done. And when you think of these players, when you think of Jonathan Vilma, you're going to think of the guy who was, oh, that's the guy who wrote the ten thousand dollar check. That's not what I'm thinking. I'm thinking that's Jonathan Vilma. That's the guy who stood up to Goodell, was, was willing to go to court with him, and wouldn't back down from him because he said, you're not going to destroy my reputation. You're not going to do that. And there's no due process within the National Football League. I understand that you know, it's not the court of law, but if you have someone who's administering the punishment as Roger Goodell is, but then you make him the appeals process too, uh, I'm sorry, but in a league that is – like predominantly African-American to be in a situation where you have one, like one white guy who's defending <laughs> all your faith. You talk to, you talk to players off the record in the NFL about how that sits with them and, 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 and how deeply that offends them and the reasons why. And that is a show. 
that is a show right there because because that goes so deep and is so entrenched in, 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 in a lot of the uh, the history of this country that that's why that's why players hate Goodell and there's a lot of them that do. Would you change anything about the film or about the process of making the film in hindsight? Would not change would not change anything. You know, the 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 participants were amazing. They they let me into their lives. They gave me a lot of a lot of trust to bring me into intimate moments that were uh, that were devastating for them personally and hard for me to actually witness, but it was validating. Uh, you know, ultimately, I think that you know, with the product itself and with what we're going to be pushing for in terms of the big doctors, I think we're going to impact a lot of young lives. Um, I know the NFL has already seen the elements of this film that deal with the retired player situation, and I've been heartened by some of the response from people that let me know that they think that this film could have had some impact um, in helping that along and 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 helping give these guys a voice because the NFL knows it's coming out. Um, you know, I, I, there's nothing about it I would change. Even the fact that ESPN rejected us, I think it just actually creates a bigger cultural conversation about how inappropriate that is, especially considering that uh, the people this film was designed to help. So uh, there's nothing that I would change about it. And, you know, I'm really proud of the effort and the people that I, that I work with. And um, I doubt very seriously that, that I'm going to necessarily be a part of a project that's quite as, uh, uh, as deep as this in terms of being able to, to help people in a situation and shed light on a situation that really needs to be examined. You've been listening to Sean Pamphalon. Sean is the director of the United States of Football. Sean, thanks so much for taking the time to join the podcast today. Thank you very much. Can I tell the people where they can get our website and, and, and look into the project? Please do. It's www.theusof.com. www.theusof.com. Sean, thanks again. Thank you very much. Appreciate it.